All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible and you'd like a physical Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand and the usher team will come around and hand you one, I believe. Yeah? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just saw the Bible. And hey, I would just encourage you in this. One of the things I love about having a physical Bible is, especially as we're going through a book like the book of John, I can't cover everything. Uh, I have to like cut a lot in terms of the study and, ter- and, and what makes it into a message. It's in the background. We just can't look at all of it. And so this allows you to kind of track along as we go through it. It, it makes me think of, oh man, I'm getting ready to use a football illustration. Too soon for the Niners losing last week. It's like if you go to the actual game, you can see the whole field. You can see everything happening. Whereas if you're, you're on your TV, you just see a little. You can start to see, okay, hey, this is how it connects. And, and if you don't have a Bible, keep it. We'd love for you to keep the Bible. If not, if you ha- already have one and you, you just would like to follow along, you leave it on the seat and our, our team would um, be more than happy to come around and, and grab that from you. But we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Excuse me. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes and where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that they may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned, we're making our way through the book of John in this series we're calling Light of the World. Jesus is the, is the light of the world. That theme just has come up every week, and we've just, we've just gotten started in the book of John. But we come now to a place where John, or actually more Jesus, breaks down what it means to be his follower. Like here we are, just chapter 3, and Jesus is telling us what it means to be his follower. More specifically, what it means to become his follower and what it means to live as his follower. And what I find especially helpful about this text is he's not just getting at 
really important matters just in and of themselves, but he's getting at these important matters with the backdrop of religion. And he's contrasting what he's about in his gospel from religion. A lot of us need to understand this. I mean, if you're checking out the faith, I imagine some of you even hearing that thought, wait, wait a minute, Jesus is not religion, you know, help me work that out. Yeah, his gospel is, is in contrast to religion. And for those of you who are followers of his, these are important matters because often the way that we functionally live is not in light of what Jesus lays out here so clearly. So today we're going to talk about what it means to become a follower of Jesus and how we live as a follower of Jesus, what it means to live as his follower. So let me pray and then we'll start to unpack it. Father, again, thank you for the little ones that we had to celebrate just moments ago. Thank you for just even the faith reminder that we have to have faith like a little child in order to enter it. Or we need to be born again, as you say in the text we're looking at today. Father, would you please help us through the power of your spirit understand these things. Even Nicodemus, this religious leader, this religious insider, didn't have it worked out. And yet you beckoned him, you called him, as you do to us today. So whether we're checking out these things for the first time or whether we've been following you for many years, would you open up your word to our hearts that we might be drawn to you or drawn more deeply into you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Jesus and the religious insider. First, let's look at what it means to become a follower of Jesus. Okay. So where we pick up here in John 3 is, Nicodem- is a place where Nicodemus approaches Jesus, quote, at night. And he comes to him with, these, with this statement in verse 3. Rabbi, we know, meaning the other religious, religious leaders and I, we all know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. That was a big thing for Nicodemus to be saying to Jesus. Okay, Even this short of a time into Jesus' earthly ministry, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were already at odds with him. Were already in opposition to him. And it's not hard to wonder why. Jesus was coming and just upending the religious status quo. He just came in, and really Jesus had no qualm picking battles with them. I mean, Jesus is normally quiet, gentle, gracious in temperament. But with the Pharisees, sometimes he would just open up and be like, no, you guys are, if anything, misleading people, leading people away from God. And so even from an early time in his ministry, the Pharisees were kind of at odds with him. And so here's Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, who came to Jesus at night, like under the cover of darkness. And he's basically saying, basically conceding to Jesus, yeah, though my other religious brethren won't say it themselves, we all know you're legit. We all know that you're of God. Because who else could, you, you know, do the things that you're doing and not be of God? Like we know, like they might not say it, Jesus, but I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. And so he, he came to Jesus and he's trying to understand more. And what I find absolutely fascinating is how Jesus responds because put yourself in Jesus' shoes. How, is, how would you have responded to a leader in the, opposite, the, the opposing party coming and telling you this kind of intel, right? I would have been like, dude, tell me more. Like, who's with me in, on the inside? Like, who can we move, maneuver? And You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Go all West Wing on them. Figure it out. Jesus could care less about those things. Doesn't respond at all on that front. Instead, he's completely interested in Nicodemus's heart. He says, I tell you the truth. In fact, that's a word that he repeats not only just a number of times in our own text, not only in the text of Mark 10 that I read for the child dedications, all throughout his ministry with the literal words, amen, amen, I say to you. In other words, Jesus was using a phrase here that he would often use to try to say, you got to listen to this. Nicodemus and 
those down the ages reading this, you got, you got to listen to this. Uh, you guys know how, you know, when somebody in our culture, even if they're not religious, you know, something moving happens and they say, amen. You know, it's just, it's just kind of a guttural just like, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah I believe or I'm, I'm, I, that's, I agree or whatever. Jesus was, when he said amen, I'm amen, like as translated in our text, very truly I say to you, he was not just saying, hey, you really got to listen into, li- listen in. He's like, he was doing so passionately. He's like, Nicodemus, you got to listen to this. You got to take this in. Amen, I'm, amen, I say to you, unless, no one will see the kingdom of God unless you are, are born again. What does it mean to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus? First, let's consider what it does not mean. Okay, because the contrast here is unavoidable, unmistakable. You see, with this religious leader coming and trying to figure out Jesus, and Jesus saying, you got to be born again, he was first highlighting some things that it, it's not about in terms of becoming a Christian. First of all, it's not about becoming religious. Right? Here's this religious leader, this Pharisee, coming to Jesus saying, hey, tell me what it's all about. And Jesus is saying, yeah, it's not about being religious. And, you know, it's really easy if you read the scriptures and you read about the Pharisees and religious leaders, it's really easy to just start dogging on them as you kind of, like, think about their situation. You know what I mean? As a little kid, I used to think, I used to equate Pharisees bad, everybody else good, right? Jesus upset with them, everybody else had it going. Jesus clearly cared for Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. Nicodemus, and, and, and all the Pharisees, giving benefit of the doubt, were, were loving people. They cared a lot about what God cared about. They cared a lot about other people. They cared about religious services and all that sort of stuff. you got to figure that Nicodemus was a great dude on the surface of it. Earnest in his devotion. Probably really like reformed in his behavior, trying his best. And Jesus was saying, no, it's not about that. It's not about being religious. It's not about behavior modification. It's not about good works. And that's really important for us to understand. I mean, I know for, I imagine for a number of you, like many of my friends down the years, checking out the faith, and you probably think at the end of the day what it means to be Christian, what it means to follow Jesus is doing good things. I've had many people down the years say that. Yeah, it doesn't essentially mean to be a Christian to like go to church, say your prayers, give back. Obviously things God cares about, Jesus cares about, but it's not God's gospel through Jesus is not about religion. And I would just say for those of you who are followers of Jesus, and you're going, yeah, yeah, David, I got it. We were just in a group this week, and it came up in our Bible study, talking about how we all essentially know this, and yet we functionally live like this. It's so easy to kind of drop into religious mode, even in our relationship with God, when we know maybe that it's not that's not how it works in a relationship. It's really easy to just make it about a list of do's and don'ts. And, oh, God's upset with me now because I did this. It's really easy to do that. Becoming a Christian is not becoming religious. Number two, becoming religious is not becoming knowledgeable. Or actually think of it this way. You don't have to become knowledgeable and get all your understanding worked out in order to become Christian. Does that make sense? Because Nicodemus had it all worked out. Most of it. Theology. He had the, the pedigree. He had the education. In fact, his name, Nicodemus, is a Greek name, which Bible scholars help us understand, meant that this guy was really educated. I mean, just being a Pharisee in that day and age meant he was extremely educated. This is back in the day where religious people were some of the few who were actually educated in that population. But furthermore, him keeping his Greek name, Nicodemus, meant Jesus, of course, teaching in a Hebrew society, meant that he probably had some education from a Greek Area And so all signs show that Nicodemus had it figured out. He had it worked out. He had education. 
And Jesus is saying, nope, it's not that either. Which is important for us to understand because if you're here, you're checking out the claims of Jesus. It's not about figuring out all the theology or getting all the Bible worked out before you can become a Christian. Now, those things matter. Theology matters. What the Bible has to say matters. But ultimately, that's not how we become Christian. And I would just say for those of you who are followers of Jesus, if someone asks you a question of the faith and you don't know how to answer that, that doesn't mean you're less Christian. Wherever we're coming from, whether we're checking out the faith for the first time or trying to answer someone's question about the faith or just working through our own questions, the Lord invites us to ask questions, seek answers, but that's not what makes us Christian. Knowledge. Nor is it about becoming, nor is becoming Christian ultimately a cultural thing. Okay? This one might be the most straightforward thought for us in this room, but probably would have been the most radical thing for Nicodemus to have wrestled with. What do I mean by that? If you would have asked Nicodemus in his day what it meant, like why he was a follower of God, what made him a follower of God, he probably would have said because he was a descendant of Abraham. Right? He would have pointed to his lineage, his cultural background, and the like. And Jesus is saying, nope, not that either. You know, we live in the Bay Area where this is probably less the case, although it still, still matters. But I have found when I've had the chance to travel, particularly through the Bible Belt here in the States, and I've gotten to talk to some pastors there. We've had some church partners down the years that I've gotten to spend time with in the Bible Belt. Wonderful churches, doing wonderful things. But their pastors help me understand, they're like, man, ministry in the Bible Belt is completely different than the Bay Area. To which I'm like, yeah, probably, right? But then, but then they break down, like, why that's the case, particularly where they are. They're like, you know, one of the things I, we just, I just would love about being in the Bay Area is at least everybody, more or less, knows what they're saying about themselves. They say, I'm Christian, I'm not Christian, and they're clear on that. In the, in the Bible Belt, everybody says they're Christian, and are they Christian? I don't know. I started working that through. It's like, that's actually kind of interesting. Because what, what they say is a lot of people just say, well, I'm Christian because I call myself Christian. Or I'm an American. I mean, or, or you, know, I, I, you know, my family's Christian, so I'm Christian. And, and Jesus, no. That's, that's, not what makes, that's not what it means to become a Christian. And then last but not least, becoming Christian is not becoming political. Ah, now we go there. <laughs> We're told that Nicodemus was not only a religious leader, but he was, he was a member of the ruling council of religious leaders, of the Pharisees. We know from other texts that's the Sanhedrin. It's this little religious body of, of influential people. Nicodemus was influential. He had some clout. He was political. And you say, nope, that doesn't do it. Boy, do we need to hear this on an election year. <laughs> Wouldn't you say? Becoming Christian is not becoming political. It's, this is so important. At, at one point, Jesus goes on to say, in contrast to the political dynamics of his day, in contrast to Caesar and Roman politics, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. I didn't come to establish political reign and rule. And so that's really important. Some of you really need to hear that. Is, hey, becoming Christian is not political. Some of you are like, whoa, really? That's not what the media is telling me. Yeah, no. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, we need to take very seriously how easy, let alone in our culture, but how easy it is for people to hear something we say related to politics and go, oh, that's what it means to be Christian. You know what I'm saying? And something we say or, heaven forbid, post online. You know what I'm saying? But becoming Christian is not becoming po political. So what does it mean to become Christian? 
Jesus says it here. He says, very truly I tell you, you must be born again. Now, are any of you catching the sad irony there? In my study this week, I'm like, what? you got to be kidding me. There's a sad irony here. We just talked about how becoming Christian is not becoming political, right? And yet Jesus says you got to become born again. If we were to go outside and do a little street exercise and say, hey, what does it mean to you, the words born again, what do you think people would say? What would you have said before he came in here? I'll say from my own humble experience, having grown up in the Bay Area and had a number of conversations with people, they would probably almost certainly assume being born again is a political thought related to Christianity. Are, are you tracking? Like that to me is actually kind of sad irony that, yeah, Jesus says we need to be born again, but he's actually saying we need to be born again, born again in contrast to being political. Sad irony. <laughs> okay, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean, according to what Jesus is saying here in this very famous text with this interesting religious backdrop, he said, no, I tell you the truth. Amen, amen, I say to you. You will never see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. What does it mean to be born again? Low-hanging fruit, to be born again, has to mean something happens to us that's completely outside of our control. Wouldn't you say? I mean, when was the last time a baby said, you know what, I want to be born? You know what I'm saying? I'll leave that illustration right there. <laughs> Moving along. You know, there's nothing you bring to the table as a baby. There's nothing Nicodemus, with all his pedigree, could point to, given what Jesus is saying, that would make him a follower of Christ. You had to be, you had to be born again. It is completely dependent on what God and God alone has done for you and me and friends. That is the best news the world has ever heard. In fact, we come now to perhaps the most famous verse in all of the scriptures, John 3.16. I wonder if you, when I was reading it, we often don't hear it in this context. It's just like, there it is. Here's, here's the verse that you'll see in football stadiums and all that sort of stuff. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. God sent his son into the world to offer eternal life. To whom? To whoever believes in him will receive eternal life. Uh, this idea of eternal life, it's worth noting because in our English, we, we read the translation, we think about it in our English, uh, with our English minds, we, I, I imagine you're like me, you think about it just in terms of life without ceasing. Eternal life is just this idea of life without ceasing. Now that's part of it, but really the way Jesus is saying and often how the scriptures utilize it, is not just life without ceasing, it's talking about the quality of life without ceasing. Eternal life, as, as Jesus is using it here, is talking about the quality of life in the sense of life in God. Life eternal with him. And so when, they, when he contrasts eternal life from perishing, those who believe in me will not perish but have eternal life, he's really contrasting life with God, in God, from life without God, apart from God. Is that making sense? Life in God is not just always in the presence of God. Life in God is in the presence of God and in the presence of all things God. So life in God is, is what makes heaven heaven is it's, it's all his beauty. Everything, it's all God's righteousness, his goodness, his love, his purity, his, his holiness, his justice. Perishing life without God is not just without, God in, without God's presence, it's without all of what makes God God. It's, it's apart from all of his goodness. 
his holiness, his purity, his justice, his, his righteousness. And God loves you and me too much to force us to choose life with God. He puts it in front of us and says, will you believe? Will you receive? Will you, will you have me? Will you have life and what life in me means and what it means to be born again? What it means to become a follower of Jesus is just to believe, just to receive that, period, full stop. In uh, Rooted This Week, our group, uh, we, we were reading an article that was talking, uh, was kind of breaking this down in terms of the ABCs of salvation. Now, there's no place in the scriptures that say, here are the ABCs of scripture, right? But it was a helpful kind of way to think about it in terms of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. The ABCs, number one, uh, number one, A, admit. Admit that you don't have it all together. That you are, as the Bible calls, a sinner, fallen, missing the mark. And admit that you need outside help. B is believe. Believe that God, through his son, has done everything for you. That's what the cross is all about. He went on to the cross to die for the forgiveness of sins. That we receive and we receive eternal life in him. Believe in what, who he says he is about himself. He's fully God, fully man. We've already seen that in just two chapters of John. And that he came to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And then C, commit. Commit to following him. Commit to as best you can. If Christ did that for you, why would we not commit to following him? And in following him, loving and caring for others as he cares for others. That's what it means to become a Christian. What does it mean to live as a Christian? Uh, three ways, and we'll just move through these. Verse 18 shows us that we need to live in God's grace. Or to use the phrase that I'm going to get ready to read here, live not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned because already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. I've had a book that many people have said I've, I, I needed to read down the years that I finally got around to reading. <laughs> it's, in, it's been in my queue and I finally got around to reading it. It's called The Universe Next Door. Any of you guys read that? It's kind of a survey of the major world religions and major life philosophies in the world. And what I find really fascinating about this book, I'm only about three-quarters away, by the way. I would recommend it, but it's, it's a good read. What I find fascinating is of all the world religions and of all the world's life philosophies, all of them are essentially wrestling with and trying to resolve this idea that, one, we all essentially know that there's a standard of good and right, and two, that we all basically don't meet that standard. So, for instance, even the nihilist that believes life is meaningless, there's no purpose, there's no good, there's no, there's no right, there's no wrong, even the nihilist has to spend a lot of time arguing why that is the case. Just saying, well, you, well we have laws because, well, we have to have them. Well, why do we have laws if they're not based on standard? You know what I'm saying? Like everything, secularism and religion, are all trying to deal with the fact that we all kind of know, we call it conscience, call it, God's law, call it whatever, a high moral standard that we are also just not living up to. Use secular words, we're, we're just human, you know, flawed people, whatever it might be, religious, sinful, we need to like, you know, karma or whatever, whatever it might be. The Bible says we all know that. And the whole point of Jesus being sent into the world is to rescue us from that. That we do stand condemned. We do know there's a right and wrong. We do know there's Something called justice, and that's good and right. If that wasn't there, we'd be in trouble, and we stand condemned. Ultimately, the Bible says our greatest condemnation is that we're 
separated from God, and God has made a way back into relationship, eternal life, life with God forever in Christ and what he has done. You could receive that. But for those who have received that, it's living in that. Do you live in that grace? Do you live the not condemned life? And what I mean by that, I always got to say it in a room this size, is not, hey, you can just go off and do whatever, get out of jail free card. You know, you're forgiven, so might as well just go do it and God's going to forgive you. No. Many biblical writers say if you're doing that, you, can't, you don't believe probably. Because <laughs> God gave his son in order to give you that forgiveness. But if, if you have received that, are you living the uncondemned life, the not condemned life in that you're, you're allowing yourself to live in that grace? Romans 8, 1 says it most eloquently. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, you're going to miss the mark. I'm going to miss the mark. But God, through his son, gives you forgiveness. So if you're holding on to, say, guilt and shame, hopefully that guilt and shame points you towards the Lord and his ways. But ultimately, it's not something for you to carry. It's something he carried for you. Jesus was condemned in our place so that we are not condemned. Are you living in that grace? Number two, live in that grace. Number two, live in the light. Are you living in the light? I mean, that's kind of the, the language that's being used here. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Living as a Christian means living in the light. But guess what? It is the human condition including Christians, to prefer, if it's left up to our own devices, the darkness, not the light. But we are called to live in the light. What does that entail? Well, number one, it means we got to know what the light is, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's just deduction right there. we got to know God's light. And I would just commend you, by the way, by very nature of you being here, you are trying to study God's light, God's word, God's ways. And my prayer every, every week is to hopefully give us something as, we, as I kind of take time to study this and give ourselves a formal thought of looking into God's word to consider God's light for us, taking that seriously. But are you, are you turning to God's light for yourself as well? Let me give you a quick example. Every so often, somebody will come to me and say, Pastor, I need to figure out what I should do, what I ought to do. And if it's a Christ follower, I'll say, well, what do you think God's word says about that? Sometimes they know and they'll say something, or sometimes they, they won't. I'll say, well, have you thought of this? Here, here's a scripture that might speak to that. What do you think of that? And I'll often include the thought, and definitely don't just do something you think David says. Heaven forbid, fear of God in me. I don't have to be a pastor to think that way, but just in general. What do you think God, in his word, has to say? It's his light. What do you think he's saying? And are you living that out? That's what it means, living out. You've got to at least know the light. But number, number two... We need to live in what I like to call active repentance. Okay, Where am I getting this from the text? Again, remember I told you you should grab a Bible if you want it. Um, there's some, it talks about we're born of water and spirit. There's some related to that. I don't have time to develop all of that. But the idea is living in, in active repentance. Repentance is, is, is two parts. One, it's acknowledging where we missed the mark. It's acknowledging our sin. Acknowledging where we mess up. How are you at acknowledging where you mess up? It's confession. Incidentally, when you confess to the Lord, it's not like he's going, oh, I didn't know that about you. Like it, Confession ultimately with the Lord is actually just coming into agreement with the Lord because he already knows his word. 
and knows how you missed it, how I missed it. It's just, confession is just coming saying, Lord, I know you're right. I missed it. Forgive me. Confession might also be with others, seeking reconciliation, forgiveness because of a hurt or wherever it might be. Repentance is, is acknowledging it, right? The second part of repentance is turning from it. That's what it literally means. It means to turn, turn from it with God's help to say, okay, I was doing that. I want to move in a different direction. And the reason why I call this active repentance, because if you carry out the human logic of this, our nature says that we are missing the mark all the time. Yes, Christians, myself, we miss the mark all the time. I don't need scriptures like Romans 8 to tell me that I am like deceitfully wicked all the time. That's the human heart. Meaning if we're not regularly repenting, coming to the Lord, asking for forgiveness, looking to reconcile with others, if we're not actively looking to turn, we're preferring the darkness. There's a reason why the scriptures liken sin to things like the bondage of slavery. Living in the light is God's love. His, it's his life for us. Just use some examples of how like sin can just steal life from our lives. I mean, just think of the example of greed, okay? There's a lot of greed around in the Silicon Valley, wouldn't you say? It's not hard to see it around us. It's really easy to look at others and go, yeah, I see the greed in their lives and how that's not only impacting them, but also the, those around them. You know what I'm saying? Okay, I can see that in them. Or take anger, bitterness, resentment. We can go, okay, I can see the bitterness in that person, how it's impacting them and others around them. But guess what? When it comes to our own selves, we don't see it. Or we suppress it. Or we excuse it. Or we deny it. You know what I'm saying? These are all the things where we're living in darkness. And I will just say this. I read an article just two weeks ago, unrelated to the preparing for this message, that says this. Many surveys show that Christians are just as likely to embrace lifestyles that are consumer-driven, self-centered, and what's seen as immoral as those not professing to be Christ followers. That should be a humbling statement, wouldn't you say, for, for those of us who are followers of Jesus? And the article goes on to say, you know what is the way out of that? There's <laughs> three, three traits. Honesty, vulnerability, humility. Sounds similar to bringing things to the light, wouldn't you say? Honesty, vulnerability, humility. Are you living in the light? Christ followers, brothers and sisters. Would you say living in the light categorizes your life as a follower of Jesus? Would you say those in your life would say that's true of you? Ooh, that's a hard one. We are called to live in the light. Guess what? Remember the first thought we talked about? Living as a Christian starts with not being condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means you can, I can live in the light. Why? Because we're not condemned. The only one who matters, the judge, capital J judge, looked at us and said, I condemn my son in, in your place to offer you eternal life, life with God forever. So now Christians can go, you know what, I, I do prefer darkness. My, my nature is saying I want to live in the darkness. I want to excuse this behavior. I want to excuse what I said over here calls to live in the light. Would you say that categorizes your life? And I think the reality is we don't need surveys to say probably not. We need to live in active repentance, meaning regularly go, Lord, how am I missing the mark? How am I letting my anger come outside, my impatience, my greed, whatever it might be, and live in the, in the life? And I would just say for those of you who have maybe never brought things to light 
deeds of the darkness. Yes, it is scary to do that, but it is one of the most life-giving things that the Lord will give you. And, you know, there needs to be wisdom and discernment involved. I don't recommend everybody going to anyone and everyone and confessing their deepest, darkest. You know what I'm saying? You need to be wise about it. Find somebody in, in your group for all manner of pastoral reasons. I would say find somebody of the same gender. And, and could you have somebody trusted who can help you apply grace and truth to your life in those areas? And just think of it this way. Could you imagine if we all started to do this just a little bit more, the light and life that would just emanate, not only in us, but beginning out through us, particularly if it's coupled with humility, meaning not religion, and now I've brought things into light, you need to too, you know, like, but just love and grace, and this is what it means to live as a Christian, not condemned, active repentance, and the last but not least, we're wrapping up now, is to lift up Christ. Uh, Jesus says here in verse 14 to Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus was referencing an Old Testament text that no doubt Nicodemus would have been well familiar with. It's found in Numbers 21, if you're interested in checking it out later. But it's the account of the ancient Israelites out in the wilderness, on their way to the promised land, just getting caught up in some bad sin, okay? And judgment came in the form of venomous snakes just biting them. Many were bitten. Many of them were dying. And God turned to Moses and said, hey, what I want you to do is fashion a pole with a bronze snake on top of it. Bronze, incidentally, with its association with fire, is often seen as a symbol of of judgment. He said, I want you to lift that up among the people. And everybody in the camp who looks at it will, will be saved. And Jesus, of course, was employing the same imagery with Nicodemus, about himself. For when he would go to the cross, he said, it's the same thing. The world, Jesus is saying, is perishing, apart from God, apart from relationship in me. But you can turn to believe on and receive what Christ has done on the cross. And so guess what, current family? This is our task. As Christians, as a church, to lift up Jesus. Not lift up religion, Not lift up cultural background. You know what I'm saying? Not lift up, you got to have your knowledge all figured out. Not lifting up politics, heaven forbid. Lifting up Jesus. And I love thinking about that way because, man, as scary as it is to think about talking about our faith in a place like the Silicon Valley, we're just, just, hey, here's Jesus. What do you make of him? In the same way he was lifted up to us if we've received him, we make him available to others. So what does it mean to become a Christian? It means just to believe him. Receive what Christ has done for you. Period, full stop. That's what it means to become a Christian. What, it means, what does it mean to live as a Christian? Well, it means to know him and live in his light and to lift him up. And, man, what a joy it is to get to do that with you here in this place. We get ready to move towards two gatherings and all the rest of it. Our aim, as ever, since before we started to now, and pray that the Lord only ever helps us do this going forward, is to lift up Jesus. How would the Lord call you to, for those of you who are followers, how, how would he call you? today, even this week, into the invitation that he has here today, to live in his light and to lift up the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being our light. We want to live in that light. And we confess that we regularly, regularly choose the darkness in our own ways. I do that. Forgive me, Father. Forgive us. 
For we stand not condemned, but you gave us eternal life in Christ. Would you help us live in that, really fully receive that, sink into our hearts that we might live increasingly in the light for your glory, not for the sake of lifting up religion or behavior or knowledge or politics, for the sake of lifting up the name of Jesus that many would turn and receive eternal life in him as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.